Well, amen. What a tremendously poignant time of worship and song as we turn our attentions to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is where we find ourselves this morning as we have been on a year-long journey through the storyline of scriptures. We've been reading along together through scripture in our Bible reading plan. Maybe you fell off on that a long time ago. Maybe uh, you joined us in the middle of that, so you haven't hopped on with it. Wherever you are in that, nonetheless, each Sunday we've been systematically moving through the storyline of scripture to see the long arc of God's redemptive purpose and plan and providential working of all things. Uh, to the counsel of his will and the praise of his glory. And so here we are on the final Sunday of the year, the final day of the year, and we find ourselves here at the end of this year-long journey. And I pray that this exercise uh, is um, in, in not only seeking to read through the Bible together, but for me to preach us through the storyline of Scripture has been beneficial and edifying to you as it has been to me. There's been many challenges. I was talking uh, with Cody Davis earlier this morning just about how challenging this has been for me, for us to only get to spend so little time in each book, let alone each section of Scripture, to then try to pull through some of the main uh, truths and themes that we see there. So I want to encourage you as we look to a new year to maintain a relentless commitment to studying God's Word. With that, I want to uh, say we've already got new reading plans available in the Welcome Center. So if you want to grab a hard copy of those, we've got a limited number of them. So we'll, we'll print more of them, and I'll send out a digital copy to everyone. Uh, but nonetheless, I kind of reworked the reading plan. So we, it's still chronological, but uh, thematic as well. So uh, pick one of those up if you need a reading plan uh, to guide you through God's Word in the new year. Uh, nonetheless, here we are in the book of Revelation. And uh, as I was preparing for this Sunday, I got increasingly excited as well as sad that I only limited myself, once again, to one sermon here in the book of Revelation. So I can definitely see in our future a series in the book of Revelation. Nonetheless, we've got to get through Romans in a year and a half. So uh, that's well into our future that we might be tackling that. But a right understanding of Revelation requires a right understanding of God's Word in its entirety. So how appropriate that here we are at the end of a year-long journey of reading through God's Word chronologically, that now here we are in the book of Revelation, which of course means we must approach Revelation with great humility and with an understanding that there are many things that we won't understand until the Lord fully reveals them to us. And so I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word once again as we read our text for this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, I pray a continued sense of humility as we make ourselves subject to your self-revelatory word. I pray for myself that you would guard my mouth from error, that you would focus our hearts and minds on your word and all the implications therein for how we as your people, as your church, as a kingdom of priests are to live in the here and now in light of these truths that you have revealed to us through your servant, John. And I pray that as we seek to live according to these truths, that you would receive glory and honor increasingly, not only from us as your church, but as we seek to communicate and share your gospel in a dark and dying world, that increasingly more would come to know and to see the salvation that is in the lion-like lamb, or the lamb-like lion from the tribe of Judah. Pray, God, that you would open our eyes and hearts and ears to see your word and to rightly understand it. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, Before, as with much of the Bible, before we can understand and jumping into a passage like this, a chapter like this, especially in a book like this, we need to understand our context. So going back, if you begin in Revelation 1 and going through chapters 1 through 3, you'll see The Lord tells John to deliver a message to seven churches. And so we have these seven epistles. And so that's what one of the things that makes Revelation so unique is uh, not only is it apocalyptic literature, but it is epistle as we have these letters to these churches written with specific instruction and guidance and encouragement and exhortation to these churches. And then we have this vision of the throne room of heaven which begins in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, 
we see immediately preceding our text for today, John gives a focused and vivid look into the throne room, specifically to the throne and the one who is seated on the throne. And so we get this uh, picture of all these creatures that are surrounding the throne and, and singing uh, to the one who is seated on the throne. And we get these depictions, not of these chubby babies with wings and harps, right? But we get these depictions of these creatures of which we've never seen or heard or are hard to depict. And so this is part of the language of revelation. It would be as if I took Ronnie Threadgill and he and I stepped out into the hallway here and I said, Ronnie, I'm going to show you a color that has never been seen before by man. It's a color that it doesn't exist on any color wheel. It doesn't exist on any color spectrum that anybody's ever seen before. And then I told Ronnie to come back in here and describe that color to you. All right, so he's going to use a lot of, it's kind of like this color, and it's as if this color was mixed with this, and he's going to use a lot of that type of language. And that's what we see dispersed throughout these, these visions of Revelation, because he, John is describing things which have never been uh, in, in captured by the human mind or have been uh, dimly seen in prophets past, but are continually to be made known now and what God is showing him. And so as he describes the one seated on the throne, he uses all these different things as, as he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So you're seeing like he's kind of describing as best he can using known human uh, elements and language on kind of what he's seeing here in this throne room, which is likely indescribable, but he's describing it as best he can. So... And from this throne comes these flashes of, of lightning and rumblings and these peals of thunder. And around this throne are these creatures. And these creatures that are grand in their description have a song to sing. And day and night, they never cease to say, this is verse 8 of chapter 4, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So now we, we know who this indescribable one seated on the throne is. These creatures are circling this throne and they're singing constantly this song of the holiness of the Lord God Almighty. And who was and is and is to come. So now we see that he is praiseworthy because of these attributes. That he is eternally existent from eternal past and is so he exists and reigns now and is to come as he will eternally exist and into eternity future. The Lord God Almighty. And so whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, this is verse 9, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, so now we know there's, there's 24 elders here and they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, so now they have a song to sing, these 24 elders, and their song is, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So now we see God's sovereignty in creation. His creative work is also being praised and honored and shouted here as the reason for his worthiness and his glory and his honor and his power. So now we turn our attentions to our text for today. 
We're in the same throne room. This is happening simultaneously, right? Because you see our first word in verse 1 of chapter 5 is, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. So we're still in the same throne room, same exact time, and now he's shifting our attentions here. Because John's attentions are being shifted to continually pick up more detail about what he's seeing here in this throne room. And so in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, who we've established is the Lord God Almighty, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So we've already established him who's seated on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. But now we're told that this one seated on the throne has this scroll in his hand. And it's written on the front and the back, and it's sealed completely shut with seven seals. So some historical detail is necessary here is Roman wills were sealed with seven seals. So, okay, that kind of gives us some context as to what John might be seeing on this scroll, what might be in this scroll. They were also written on both sides, which is something that wasn't widely done in the ancient world. So this is kind of giving us a, a distinct picture of what it is here. So on the outside of the scroll of a Roman will would have been a brief summation of what was on the inside so that you didn't have to break the seals to know what was on the inside. The seals were sealed by seven witnesses to what it contained. And so this is all legal uh, documentation. This is all legal working here. The conundrum is that this isn't so much a will as it is a decree and a contract. And that will come clear as we continue to break down and exposit what we see in the rest of our text for today. But I think that's exactly the point, that this will, this contract, this decree can only be opened and understood and enacted by one person. A person. That's what, that'll be key here in a little bit as we look. But we also, we, we've seen this scroll before. Again, as I said earlier, in order to rightly understand Revelation, we have to have a proper understanding of the entirety of God's Word. We've seen this scroll before in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. We read this, And when I looked, so Ezekiel, looking into the throne room of heaven, he's captured away, as he often says in the book of Ezekiel, and a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Ezekiel is, of course, prophesying in the context of the Babylonian exile. And so he is then told to eat this scroll and communicate to the people what was going to happen to them as a result of their sinfulness, their rebellion against the Lord, and what the Lord was going to do on the other side of this exile. And so Ezekiel communicates to the people the very message given to him by the Lord. That's the idea of him eating the scroll, is that the Lord is putting the words in his mouth. So the words of a prophet are given from the Lord. And so here we see this scroll as analogous with God's word and will that are to be pronounced and enacted upon his people Israel. So before we move on, I want us to, to see here this morning two timeless and timely truths for the church. Two timeless and timely truths for the church are going to be our first two main overarching points this morning. The first one comes right here in verse 1. 
that all things are held together by the will of God. Don't miss this one of the major themes of this scene. Because as we read Revelation, we can get so caught up in the, the, uh, the symbolic nature of it, the, the imagery, all these different uh, adjectives that are being used, that we can lose sight of what is being actually described. So, and that is here that God is ruling and reigning on his throne, and his name is and will be forever glorified. That's, that's the picture that's described here. God is on his throne. This scroll of his will and decree is what is going to happen at the end of days is firmly in his grasp and it can only be opened by one who is worthy. That's what's being described here. He is accomplishing all things and bending all of history to this point. And all things are held together by his will. We may not understand it. We may only understand in part sometimes. We may only see through a dimly lit glass. But all we need to know is this truth, that God's will is what holds all things together. Here sits the eternal God the Father, first person of the Trinity. And what is it that is held tightly in his hands? This scroll, what is on this scroll? His plans for the end of all things as we know them and the ultimate glorification of his name and as we shall see the gathering of his church. So notice what we don't find described here. We don't find him hurriedly writing a new plan to combat the most recent tactic of the enemy. We don't find him sweating as if he is hopeful that what he has planned will work out. We find him ruling and reigning with what he has laid out firmly in his grasp, ready to be revealed and enacted according to his will. The security of all things does not rest with us. The security of all things does not rest with governments of this world, with militaries, or with bank accounts. The security of all things rests with him who sits on the throne. And the primary thing that we need to be remembered rests with him who sits on the throne is our salvation. This is our assurance. We've also seen reference to this scroll in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 11. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to the one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So here we see this uh, will of God, this understanding of what is being revealed to Isaiah is like this book, and it can't be read or understood by men because it's sealed. We see this reference also in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, where Daniel is told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So understanding of what's happening shall increase. But still, man shall only know in part, as God has revealed it to them. Until we see now here with this throne room vision of John. The next time you're tempted to stress about your personal finances or the bills that are mounting, remember who rules and reigns and accomplishes all things by the counsel of his will. 
The next time you're tempted to freak out over a bill that is or isn't passed in Congress, the next time that you're tempted to freak out about an election or the next foreign conflict, remember him who is seated on the throne holding according to his will the scroll of what is to be accomplished according to his will. We would do well to remember just verse 1 alone here in the depiction that it provides us. Nonetheless, we continue reading, picking back up in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, uh, remember, I said no person. Because notice where this, where this loud declaration is going about. This angel is not shouting what? Note what this angel is not shouting. Because remember what we looked at uh, just a few weeks ago in Mark 14. No one knows the time or place. But rather, our job is to stay alert. So this angel is not shouting, has the temple been rebuilt again? Can the scroll be opened now? Did the predictions of that one guy who claimed to be a prophet come true? That's not what the angel is shouting. He's like, what did Tim LaHaye write next? That's not what the angel is shouting. On a side note, notice how weak and ineffectual false teaching makes our God out to be which is a clear red flag for those to mark and avoid. But notice, the voice of this mighty angel is purposefully loud so that it penetrates the entire universe. And again, this is why we know that it's a person that they're looking for because it goes into all the earth, right? So no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll. This loud, booming voice of this angel penetrates the entire universe looking for one who is able to open the scroll. This is the cry that has gone out since the fall. This is the damning question to which there is a deafening silence. Who is worthy? Adam, our first father, are you worthy? Silence. Noah, are you worthy? Silence. Abraham, the original covenant, silence. Jacob, who himself was the namesake of Israel, are you worthy? Silence. Moses, the giver of the law, silence. David, receiver of the Davidic covenant, permanent reign over God's people, are you worthy? Silence. John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, Paul, you name them, silence. Who is worthy, not just to understand it, but to bring it to pass? And there's silence. And this silence brings John to premature tears. Notice that in verse 4, as there's no one in heaven and on earth who is able to open this scroll or to look into it. In verse 4, and I began... To weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this silence brings John to premature tears. And I say premature because of our first point, 
this morning. John would do well to notice what he's already seen, that God is ruling and reigning on the throne. His praises are being shouted. Nonetheless, what brings him to tears? What has been happening in John's life up to this point? He's seen Jesus slaughtered, crucified, resurrected. But from then, he's seen the church persecuted mercilessly. He's had himself been beaten, imprisoned, and exiled. Why is he weeping? He doesn't just want to know the summation of the outside of the scroll. John wants to see the seals broken and the contents of the scroll take place. He wants to see God's ultimate purpose made known and executed in the world. He wants to see Christian hope realized. That's what he wants. So verse 5, what do we read? And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. In other words, we don't do that here. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So I want us to break down real quick this description because it can be so easy for us to just kind of glaze over, just glance over these titles that are given here to this person that is described by one of these elders. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And we can read that and we're like, oh, wow, yeah, that sounds cool, but we just keep going, right? So first, this lion from the tribe of Judah, what is that a reference to? Where do we get that? If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is pronouncing the character of his children. Jacob, who himself, again, was the namesake of Israel. So as he's going through each of his children, who were the founders, the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. And what does he say, starting in verse 8, of Judah? Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter, that's what a king has to represent their rule. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So here we see this prophecy of what has now ultimately been fulfilled in who? This lion that we're told to look at and to see. Uh, this lion is our reason for weeping no more. And so now we know, like, this is the lion from the tribe of Judah. This is the one who came from Judah to ultimately fulfill those very words. But he's not just the lion. He's also the root of David. Well, where do we get that? So we have this lion from Judah. He's the ultimate fulfillment and complete faithfulness 
to the Abrahamic covenant. Well, now we're told also he's this lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the root of David. And that goes back to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where we read this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." So as the root from the line of David, he is the ultimate fulfillment and complete faithfulness to the Davidic covenant, which was made in continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the lion and the root, and he has conquered. That's what we're told. This lion from the tribe of Judah, this root of David, has conquered. And what does this conquering do? so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this conquering has made him able to open this scroll, which John was just weeping because it couldn't be opened. He is the lion. So how has he conquered? And by what can we identify his conquering achievements? Well, we continue to get a description of this. So John, picking back up in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw... A lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So as if we didn't get the picture full enough of exactly who this person is that John is told to turn and look at, so we know Jesus, having descended from the tribe of Judah, having been of the family line of David, and he's conquered. Right? So we're, we know we're looking at Jesus, but now as John turns to look in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures. So he's right there, just right up next to the throne. And the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So, lamb obviously is the iconic symbol of sacrifice, specifically of the Passover sacrifice. We see Jesus, of course, was crucified at Passover. So, we're told to look at this lion, and we see a lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're told something is a conquering symbol, we don't typically think of a lamb, let alone a lamb that looks like it's been slain. So, how does this show conquering? Well, notice the posture of this lamb. So we see this lamb standing as though it had been slain. See, sacrifices, especially lamb Passover sacrifices, they don't stand. Why? Because they've been slaughtered. They've been sacrificed for the purpose of being killed as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. But this lamb is standing. It's purposeful. It's intentional. This lamb is standing as though it had been slain, still bearing the marks 
of its sacrifice. But we get even more depiction here, more symbolic meaning as we continue to look at the description of this lion-like lamb. So we see this lamb standing as though it had been slain. It has seven horns. What, what could that mean? So this number seven is the symbol and this number of completion and perfection. So horns throughout Scripture are used to symbolize power, strength, and might. And again, the number seven is that of perfection and completion. So these seven horns are complete power, omnipotence, right? So we read this. Uh, here's just a few references to where else we see these, this idea of horns and the symbolic nature of them. Psalm 75 and verse 10. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So now this lamb is standing as though it had been slain, still bearing the marks of its sacrifice, but it's alive as it's standing up and it has all power. Well, it also has seven eyes. Of course, eyes represent the completion, the, the understanding, knowledge, vision. So there's seven of these. So we have complete power in the horns. We have complete understanding and knowledge, which in other words is omniscience. You move on. What else does it have? The seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven spirits. So this is the Holy Spirit going out in judgment of the unrepentant. This is also omnipresence. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, representing the complete power of this Lamb who has conquered and is worthy. That brings me to the next point, which is God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, and Jesus is preeminent. We read this in Colossians 1, that all things were created by him and for him. He existed before all things. We looked at John 1 just this last Sunday evening at our candlelight service. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and was, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus is preeminent. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and He stands having conquered death and sin. That's what we're having depicted for us here, is this ultimate conquering lamb. And what does this lamb do? He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. So this lamb is able to go into not just the presence of God the Father, but to go right up to him and to gladly take the scroll. The scroll for which was just previously announced, who is worthy? And John's crying because no one is worthy. He did like he looks, there's no one on the earth, no one available, and now here is this lion-like 
lamb from the tribe of Judah, standing as though he has been slain. And he walks right up to the heavenly father and takes the scroll. Jesus is preeminent. And how do we continue to see that? And when he had taken the scroll, let's see what the reaction is in the heavenly throne room to this. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So there's just continually new songs that were being shown as we go throughout this throne room scene. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. So not only the pronouncement of the worthiness of the lamb, but we're also then told as to why the lamb is worthy. For you were slain. So that's why it's so important for us to understand this lamb was standing as though it had been slain, still bearing the marks of its sacrifice. Because that slainness, that sacrifice, is what showed the worthiness. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So next, uh, as we've seen these first two points, these overarching points that we don't want to miss here, which is that God is accomplishing all things according to the counsel of the will and, his, and that Jesus is preeminent. I want us to ask this question of what has the worthiness of the lamb accomplished? And the first thing that we see here is that he has ransomed his church. What does it mean to ransom? It means to buy or to redeem. What cost did the lamb pay to ransom for himself, for the Lord, a people? Well, as we've read, the lamb bears the marks of our redemption, bears the marks of his slainness, bears the marks of his sacrifice. The receipts of our ransom are distinctly visible to John in this moment. Worthy are you to take the scroll for you were slain. So the next question is, ransomed from what and to what? Well, if you go on a little further, go to chapter 13 of Revelation. We read of this dragon, this beast... And this beast, for a time, has this amount of control. Pick up verse 7. Pick up in verse 7. Chapter 13, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, this dragon, this beast that we come to see later on in the book of Revelation, all people of the earth are worshiping it. This is what we see in Romans 1. We're going to get there in the, in the weeks ahead. Nonetheless, this is what we see in our world. 
people completely self-indulgent, thinking that they are fulfilling their very desires when in reality they are children of wrath. That's what we see in Ephesians. We're going to look at that here in just a little bit. So he's ransomed us from what or from whom? He's ransomed us from being under the control of the one whom we worshipped when we were in our flesh. The devil, Satan. He's ransomed us from sin, therefore, also. And this is, again, what we see in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There it is. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We go on to see, but we are saved by grace. This is why I shudder to think that there are those who can call themselves Christians, who can say that they have been radically changed by and ransomed by this preeminent lion-like lamb and yet continue to live lives of self-indulgent sinfulness, making every excuse and acceptance for why it's okay for them to do so. This is why I shudder to think of churches who are growing and increasingly accepting of all manner of what God's word has clearly said is wrong because the lamb has ransomed us from such. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's taken us from being worshipers and children of wrath and worshipers of the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. Church, let us live as ransomed people. Let us throw aside every sin which entangles us. Let us crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Let us continually be made new by the work of the Spirit within us. What else has this slain, standing lamb ransomed us for and to? What else has the worthiness of the lamb accomplished in us. He has made possible our worship. Pick back up in verse 11. So before we jump into that, you know, you've seen he's, he made us a kingdom of priests. The job of the priests was to reign over and rule and, and, and maintain the order of worship. But now he's made us a kingdom of priests. We are priests. We can go before. The priests would go into the Holy of Holies. The priests would facilitate worship. But now We are a kingdom of such, and we shall reign on the earth. That comes to be an important detail to help us understand many other things that come later in Revelation. Nonetheless, to keep us from diving down a revelatory rabbit hole there, we keep moving. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So now this scene that we were first initiated, that we first saw in chapter four, where we saw this number of creatures that were immediately around the throne, worshiping God the Father, And these elders that were laying their crowns down before God the Father, 
Well, now we're told of a myriad of such. And they are simultaneously worshiping who? The Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So as if we needed anything else to completely destroy modalism or to keep us focused on Trinitarianism, we see here that this Lamb and God the Father are two distinct persons but ultimately the same. Right? So you can't take that and separate them out or say that it's just one being manifesting itself as different things. But the Lamb and the Father are there together. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So this is ultimately the cry of all creation. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them are giving praise and honor and glory to the Lamb. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So among this myriad and the voice of many angels is this numbering of myriads and myriads of the ransomed church crying out the worthiness of the Lamb. What does the worthiness of the Lamb accomplish? He's made possible our worship. To quote Pastor John Piper on this, he says, the ultimate effect of the purchase of the Lamb is the praise of the Lamb. We read this in Psalm chapter 40, verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. This is what lays the foundation for the rest of what we see going through the book of Revelation. Our knowledge and understanding that God is on the throne, all things are being accomplished according to the power of his, the counsel of his will, and that the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, to enact what God the Father has purposed from all eternity past, and to ransom for himself a people who will praise his name into eternity future. So as we move into a new year, how would that affect you to say and to know among all things, whatever anxieties may come with a new year, whatever uh, excitements may come with a new year, that all things are held together by the will of God. If you had that solidly in our minds, how would that impact our worship? How would that impact how we live our lives daily, our, uh, our commitment and our discipline to read our Bibles daily? How would it impact our lives to know that the Lamb is worthy, that Jesus is preeminent and he has purchased, for, he has purchased us for God the Father? that we might be able to worship him into eternity. 
that he has ransomed us from sin. How would that affect how we live our daily lives, our confession of sin? How would that affect how we hold one another accountable as brothers and sisters? Moms and dads, how would that affect how we parent? Grandparents, how would that affect how we continually parent and show and point our families to Christ? How would that affect how we approach our work? To have these two truths at the forefront. That God the Father accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will and all things are held tightly in line with His will and that Jesus is preeminent. The preeminent lamb from the tribe, lion from the tribe of Judah, root of David, the lamb standing as though slain, and that he is worthy to take the scroll and accomplish God's will, which will ultimately be for us to glorify God into eternity. The challenge, though, is have you submitted to this lion-like lamb? Have you believed that Christ has conquered and that he has conquered your sin? Or are you still living according to the prince of the power of the air? Are you still living in the self-indulgent ways of the dragon that is to come a few chapters later? Because the call has gone out into all the earth. The call of the gospel is Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Believe in the worthiness of this lamb and his death, life, and resurrection and be forever changed from fulfilling the self-indulgent desires to giving praise and honor and glory to him forever. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you, as we consider these truths. I pray that you would continually humble us at the worthiness of the Lamb and the unworthiness of ourselves. And that the worthiness of the Lamb has been passed on to us. Whose name has been stamped from eternity past as you have called us according to the purpose of your will and for your glory. I pray that we as your church would continue to walk in obedience, self-sacrificial obedience to your word, that we may glorify the worthiness of the Lamb into eternity and that we may make known into eternity the worthiness of the Lamb that we may preach your gospel boldly in the present day as you continue to draw more and more to yourself. Let us live in light of this throne room scene, knowing that you are in control, that you have called us and purposed us in this time and place for your glory to make it known. And let us live as such. that you may receive all glory, honor, and blessing due your name. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.